somewhere between the paranormal and the abnormal hello all across the world listening tonight i appreciate you being with us somewhere between the paranormal and the abnormal i am jeremy scott if you've listened to this program you know there there is a lot that fascinates me really um I am most interested in just about anything that falls between the paranormal and the abnormal, uh, even getting into uh, conspiracy from time to time. There's a lot of conspiracies going on there. Oh, and we talk about those conspiracy theories as well on the program. But among everything that we discuss, I have to say that the most fascinating to me always and forever will be the topic of UFOs are now UAP says it's been adopted in its second rendition, unidentified anomalous phenomenon. It is no longer unidentified aerial phenomenon because that uh, limits it to just being something that's flying or in the air. And, of course, we know these objects exist underwater and et cetera, et cetera. And it's because of that uh, fascination that I always enjoy when we can talk about these subjects together. And we're going to go down the road tonight uh, on on a slightly different road uh, than we usually do on the program. I I love history. History is very, very fascinating to me. So when I'm able to merge history with the paranormal, uh, I get really giddy. I don't know if you've been able to tell in listening to the program. Flying saucers, though. I mean, I first heard of flying saucers as a kid when it uh, was used to describe what was happening in the skies that people were reporting. And then, of course, that evolved. We heard about triangles. I've been interested in the TR-3B and uh, other designs that could explain what's going on with the triangle UFO sightings. Of course, it was about almost six years ago now that the world became familiar with the tic-tac shape, uh, just like it sounds, like the candy, the tic-tacs, you know, that come in that little box and you shake them up. Tic-tac, the tic-tac object. And uh, we certainly have seen those. Also, the the plasma objects, even uh, the government at one of their recent briefings in Congress has shown uh, a few of what do appear to be plasma balls. And, of course, we've got radar anomalies as well, the things that uh, just you don't see uh, but but you know are there. So flying saucers have been associated 
with UFOs or UAPs throughout the decades. Witnesses have perceived disc-shaped or saucer-shaped craft flying in the skies. While that phenomenon gained significant attention in the mid-20th century with the Kenneth Arnold and also the Roswell sightings, they were not the first. But they're almost non-existent anymore, it so appears. The flying saucer isn't talked about much except in the history books. And since it's been replaced by some of these new shapes and designs, the triangles, the Tic Tacs, the plasma, uh, plasma balls, as I've uh, discussed, new designs, uh, things that people are reporting. They just don't match the definition of a saucer much anymore. That fascinates me. And to discuss that, we welcome Chris Abeck, an author, contributor, and speaker on the subject of the evolution of UFOs, his interest in the historical and sociological aspects of unexplained aerial phenomena began at an early age, much like me. A student of language and folklore, he has helped compile the largest collection of UFO cases in the world that predate 1947. He co-founded a collaborative network of librarian students and scholars of paranormal history on the internet known as the Magonia Project, which extends from North and Central America to Russia and Germany, and his new book is Saucers, Tracing the Origins of Disc-Shaped UFOs. First, Chris, did I say the name of the group right? Did I totally butcher that? No, that's fine. Well, we call it Magonia Exchange, because when we started in 2003, it was a kind of exchange project between researchers, and we said, well, you know, if you've got um, material under the bed or in the attic, in boxes, it's not doing anybody any good. Let's share it. Let's put it online now because we've all got mobile phones with cameras in them. Of course, this was back in 2003. And I said, let's do something with all of that. And we've been at it for 20 years now. All right, I want to know more about that later, but I primarily want to talk with you tonight about the flying saucer. I know that that has fascinated me. Did you grow up uh, with it uh, the same? I mean, I think you're a little older than me. I don't think I'm giving much away here. Uh, I don't know how much, uh, but did you grow up with the flying saucer as well? Okay, so I was born in 1971, and uh, so to you're be honest, 12, the... you're 12 years older than me, Chris. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, even around that time, uh, flying saucers had, had sort of gone slightly out of fashion. I mean, they did make a, a, a cultural appearance every now and again. You could see the, you know, flying saucers and all kinds of uh, cartoons on TV. And whenever someone drew a, a an alien spaceship, they'd always draw it as a, as a flat pancake or pizza-like uh, thing or like a soup bowl inverted. But uh, even at that time, I didn't play with flying saucer-shaped uh, toys on the living room carpet. Um, I suppose that with Star Wars in 1977, wasn't it? 76, 77, um, the Millennium Falcon uh, was originally based on a flying saucer shape, but they just grew it in, in different directions to create this this um, iconic thing that we all know and love today. 
that Han Solo piloted. And then before that, the uh, Starship Enterprise had also been bought uh, based on a, a flying saucer shape, but it was given appendages. Uh, so I suppose those were the only toys that I would have played with uh, growing up. But I think that the flying saucer had already started falling out of fashion in the 1970s, and, and it, it, it never sort of recovered its previous uh, glory, I'd say. And so in, in the literature up to that point, had it been primarily flying saucer-type objects that uh, were documented? Yeah. Yeah, so from the um, late 1940s until the 1970s, um, anybody who wanted to convince a ufologist that they'd seen an extraordinary object from another planet would have described it as flying saucer shaped. So if you pick up any uh, paperback book from that time, uh, you'll see flying saucers on, on the covers. Um, it, they, they appeared on T-shirts, on posters, and so on. Um, the interesting thing is that if you look at databases, actual UFO databases from the 70s onwards, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, you, you find that disks were actually quite a small percentage of of uh, the objects that people saw in the sky. So in a sense, you could say that disks had been um, over-represented, uh, particularly by the media from the 1970s onwards. But yeah, originally, that's what everybody thought that, they, that, that UFOs looked like. And so we're talking about uh, many decades, even before the Roswell and the Kenneth Arnold sightings in 1947, right? Well, actually, that's that's um, something I write about in this book because you know when I wrote um, Wonders in the Sky with uh, Jack Svalet, um, who who is an amazing uh, writer and still is, you know, he's he's in his eighties now, but uh, he's still going strong. Um, we we looked at literally thousands of UFO reports from before 1947 to compile them into our book. We, we were looking for 500 good cases. And we just couldn't find discs. Uh, and it was quite surprising. I mean, I was aware of this, but I didn't know to what extent uh, discs were missing from the record. But the fact is that um, before uh, the 24th of June, 1947, when Kenneth Arnold saw his famous nine objects, um, flying saucers were practically uh, absent, completely absent from our skies, from UFO reports. There were UFO reports, uh, of course, thousands of them before 1947, but very, very few um, were, were disc-shaped objects. And, of course, what I've done in this book, which I've called Sources, um, I've compiled every saucer-shaped object that we could find over, I mean, over the last 30 years, we've been trying to collect them together, and they've come to approximately two chapters. So I have two chapters dedicated to the uh, UFO landscape of our ancestors before 1947, and we can see very interesting UFO reports of all shapes and sizes, many of which we didn't put in uh, wonders in the sky. They've, they, they've come to light in, in, in recent years, so... A lot of people are buying the book, telling me that they, they, they've bought it for this particular reason. Um, but then there are two chapters about 
disc shapes, ring shapes, and other flat circular devices. Very few of them, very few of them look like the uh, stereotypical flying saucer that we all know and love. Okay, so Chris, when did the references then largely go away? Do we know? It's very difficult to plot, but um, if you look at um, 19, uh, well, in the, in the 1990s, they were they were already quite uncommon. Um, going back to the 1980s, the high-profile cases, those those ones which were a little bit doubtful, which a lot of people didn't really believe years later, um, they often uh, involved uh, uh, disc shapes. But if you look at the actual databases, most of them um, sort of uh, report uh, uh, spheres and triangles and everything from carrot shapes to cigars. But, yeah, it was around the, 19, the 1980s. For example, if you look at the, um, the National UFO Reporting Center in New Fork, they've got about 145,500 sightings on file from 1980 to the present day. Um, among these, discs are only about 5.9%. So we're saying that 94.1% uh, of sightings in one of the biggest databases that anyone can consult online um, were any other kind of uh, shapes. Then if we look, for example, at this uh, this new organization, the AARO, or the RO, the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, which is a body within the United States Office of the Secretary of Defense. Hold that thought because we have to take a break. And by the way, the director, Sean Kirkpatrick, has resigned, and we'll have more of that in our newscast coming up in just moments. We'll continue our conversation with Chris Abeck right after this. Yeah, not even uh, two years in, uh, there's already a shakeup at the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. Since you uh, spoke those words, Chris, I just wanted to uh, give the audience th that update. Uh, please continue your, your thought. Yeah, I was going to say that um, if you look at their database, um, discs are only 2% cases gathered since 1996 and uh, they're beaten by uh, ovals lights uh, ambiguous shapes and spheres well, and, uh, and of course tic tac which is one percent polygons squares rectangles just two percent a disc so we can see this massive decrease in in the number of uh, typical flying saucer sightings over the last 30 years 40 years Absolutely. So the Kenneth Arnold sighting of 1947 uh, in my backyard here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, did Kenneth Arnold see a disc? Well, that's a very good question, because what, ha what actually happened was that um, when he landed, after seeing these uh, nine bright objects flying over, over Mount Rainier, um, he, he went to the offices of the East Oregonian, where he spoke to two journalists, Nolan Skiff and William Beckett, and he had a very, very short interview, like, like five minutes there. Um, it, their report, I mean, it, it says the word, uh, you know, like, like flat like saucers and so on, but it doesn't really give any shape adjective. It wasn't until later on in the day 
but they re-interviewed him. And he says specifically that they were somewhat bat-shaped. And that is key. That is vital. Because um, he, he never really said that they were saucer-shaped. He compared them to saucers because they said they were very flat. In the same way that today we use the word pancake, we say that things are as flat as a pancake, but it doesn't necessarily mean they were round. And he stated that they were bat-shaped, somewhat bat-shaped, which some people have interpreted as boomerang, but um, he never said the word boomerang. So um, did he see um, saucer-shaped objects? Not really. And what I've done in the book is that I've collected together every single statement that he ever made on this subject and gone over it very, very carefully. Um, I've shown that, uh, no, he, he never claimed to see uh, round, flat objects at all. Was it reported that way? Well, what happened was, and this is this is the interesting thing, that um, the East Oregonian uh, reported about these uh, somewhat bat-shaped objects. But when William Beckett made a new version of this article uh, for the Associated Press, which then sent it to every state and every newspaper in the country, um, he described it very well, but he omitted the adjective bat-shaped. I don't know whether he forgot or whether he didn't like it or whatever, but the only shape adjective Arnold used was bat-shaped, and he didn't put it in that article. So what happened was that from that moment, every newspaper in the country um, started saying, well, he must have seen uh, flying saucer-shaped objects, uh, discs, because, of course, Arnold had said they were flat-like pipe hands, and that's the, the visual thing that people had in their minds. So that is what really sparked off the uh, flying saucer frenzy. Um, years later, uh, Arnold uh, thought that maybe uh, he'd said that, um, that the objects had skimmed over water like saucers, and that's what caused the confusion. But no, that's not what it is. And I think I'm the first person to, to make that connection, to actually find the, the real truth behind that. And that's one of the reasons I published this book. And we'll continue our conversation with the author of Saucers, Tracing the Origins of Disc-Shaped UFOs, Chris Abeck, my guest tonight on Into the Paranormal, somewhere between the paranormal and the abnormal. News coming up with George Henry. We'll have more on the arrow resignation of Sean Kirkpatrick. Stick with us. Into the Paranormal. Paranormal News. You should not need an arrow. The All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office is getting a new director as Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick is stepping down nearly a year and a half after being named director of the government's UAP office. He told Politico he's ready to move on and will do so next month. Kirkpatrick's deputy, Tim Phillips, will serve as interim director. He appeared at a congressional briefing and a meeting of NASA's UAP study group this past spring to sum up the group's work. Arrow has found no credible evidence thus far of extraterrestrial activity, off-world technology, or objects that defy 
the known laws of physics. Kirkpatrick's resignation comes amidst accusations of making false statements about whistleblowers and appearing to be disinterested in their sightings, according to the Daily Mail. He has sparred publicly with whistleblowers and activists, leading some to turn down requests for interviews due to a lack of trust. George Henry, Paranormal News. The story begins on June 24, 1947, in Washington State, near Mount Rainier. There had been a, a missing aircraft that the military had put a reward out for, and he thought, oh, I'll, I'll go out and I'll take a look. It was a, an echelon formation of very peculiar-looking aircraft, and uh, they were rapidly approaching Mount Rainier. The first widely reported UFO sighting was made by private pilot Kenneth Arnold. This boy is when I... I uh, would say approximately is where I had this terrific flash hit the air. My aircraft lit up the inside of my aircraft. Arnold's story made headlines across the country, inspiring a worldwide fascination with flying saucers. The second craft from the rear had a more or less crescent-shaped uh, look, and it had a hole in the center of it. You're traveling at the speed of light into the paranormal. 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 So what is it about the flying saucer that fascinates us so much? We are tracing the origins of disc-shaped UFOs. I'm Jeremy Scott. We are disclosing tonight. All right, so the Kenneth Arnold sighting 1947 sounds like a Chris that the media really did a bad job with his story and then it spread like wildfire. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So um, the the idea is that uh, all of the journalists around the world uh, latched on to this to this idea that he'd seen saucer shaped objects. When in, in reality, that's not what he saw. Even a couple of days later, and this again is an article that practically no one has ever um, commented on or published before. He said that they look like flying wings. That's that's something he said to journalists. Um, and uh, the fact is a flying wing is also a semi-bat-like um, uh, object. During that period, um, flying wings were extremely important. They were like a celebrity uh, technology. They were in all the newspapers uh, because they, they've been designed to help with the war effort. Um, most journalists said that they were bat-like bat shape. They reminded them of bats. This was a period when when these single-winged um, uh, vehicles uh, were, were so famous and they were such a big promise for the future of technology and, and transportation that even Mickey Mouse, there are Mickey Mouse comics in which he's piloting um, a device very similar to the crescent-shaped objects that, um, that, that Kenneth Arnold said he saw, um, and it was called The Bat. So there's no mistake possible. I mean, we know exactly what Kenneth Arnold was referring to. So, yeah, the media made a, a, a terrible job, a terrible job of, uh, of of reporting what he'd seen. And in one of those clips that we heard there, he said it had a hole uh, through the center, kind of like a, well, a donut. It wasn't in, yeah, it wasn't exactly in the center. I mean, we have to remember that it was a kind of um, a, a crescent-shaped thing. So it was, 
right in the middle where there's a peak at the back and you can imagine a crescent shaped uh, moon with a with a nose like a, a children's drawing and it's at the nose where that little unit was it he thought that that was the the energy unit that these objects uh, had um uh, he seemed to uh, have seen something like that but his his interpretation might have been inspired by another um another ufo witness william rhodes whose um, UFO photos were practically the first ever published. And they also showed uh, a kind of, um, they, they, they're called a heel-shaped, a heel-shaped um, UFO because, of, because they look like a boot heel. But we can see the resemblance to, to the crescent in a sense. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what he said. Then in 1950, uh, he had um, an airbrush painting made um, of this uh, crescent-shaped object, and that's what he used uh, till the day he died to to show that um, he he'd seen this and not uh, disc-shaped objects. And what I do in the book is that I establish that for the first time because there's always been speculation about what he'd actually seen. Uh, there's always been talk of him seeing boomerang or crescent-shaped objects, but finally I've managed to piece it all together. Okay, so what again? Uh, what, what do you believe actually happened here? Well, um, what what really happened was that um, he saw uh, nine very strange objects. He he was never entirely clear about whether he'd seen nine crescents or eight eight weird objects plus a crescent. He he sort of it was very evasive when reporters asked him about this. I suppose that uh, the memory plays tricks on us, and he was fixated on the one object that he remembered very clearly that was crescent-shaped. He didn't want to talk about the other ones. In fact, when he wrote um, a report for the, for the Air Force uh, in 1947, when he drew the first one, he never really drew that again. Uh, he never went back to, to, to that drawing again. And I believe that he was influenced by a, a kind of plane design that, that was also famous at the time called the Flying Pancake because it was exactly the same as what he drew in, in the body shape. And actually the Flying Pancake had also been, been called um, um, saucer-shaped and saucer-like even before... Uh, Arnold had had seen his his um, his sources or his objects. So um, what what really happened though is is the next very important point and something that I put in the book that the, the journalists all over uh, the United States latched onto the word saucer and then came up with the term flying saucer because the term flying saucer was already in the vernacular. It was already in people's vocabulary because flying saucer was an expression that had been invented um, around the year 1881 uh, to describe the clay targets used in trap shooting. And they had been invented by a man called uh, George Ligowski. Uh, and very, very quickly, people called them, uh, gave them affectionate names like clay pigeon and flying saucer. And then, so what that means is that for around 60 years before Kenneth Arnold's sighting, people had been using the expression flying saucer every day of their lives. It, it had been in the newspapers. Um, anyone interested in sport at the time was into trap shooting and skeet because these were like two of the main sports in North America in that period. We've forgotten all about that now these days with, um, with, with football and basketball and, and so on. But 
At that time, trap shooting and skeet were very important. And people were using the expression flying saucer all the time. Then what happened was in the, around um, 1944, because of the, of the war effort for um, World War II, the American military prohibited the, the manufacture of, of weapons and bullets for that particular sport, saying, no, we've got to focus on creating ammunition and, and weapons for the war effort for our soldiers. So um, they, they stopped the sport from happening for several years, but they said, well, we're going to hire the, the best gunners, the best sportsmen, the best marksmen um, from the world of skeet and trap shooting to train our gunners so they're ready to, to, to fire on, on the Nazis from their bombers uh, over Europe. And that's exactly what happened. For three years, maybe four years, they were training gunners, uh, American military men, um, using the term flying saucer as the, 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 an everyday expression uh, because they were, they were training on the clay targets. And uh, over a period of three or four years, newspapers... Uh, documented the use of flying saucers um, to to uh, well as substitutes for the Nazi Nazi warplanes. Then, when uh, Kenneth Arnold uh, reported his sighting, um, journalists just latched onto the word saucer, saying, "Hey, this guy's seen flying saucers." And, and that's one of the reasons why the first reports of flying saucers um, were actually a very small objects, but just like literally saucer-sized and plate-sized objects, because people expected them to be that way because of 60 years of using this term, flying saucers, in sport. Um, so when people ask me who invented the expression flying saucer, I say, well, uh, in the 1940s, nobody, because the American military was using this already, but we could go back then to the 1880s to find out um, when it was when it first appeared. And this information had never appeared before in print. I was the first person to put this together. Um, and interestingly, the Oxford English Dictionary, the main dictionary of the English language for Great Britain and the Commonwealth, um, approached me a few weeks ago saying, we'd like to use your book, we'd like to use your discoveries to amend our history of the expression flying saucer for the next edition of the dictionary and that's uh, a great honor for me um that's something that uh, doesn't happen every day but you follow just has that kind of uh, impact on the world but it just shows that uh, the information that i put together in this book i mean if if anyone's interested in in the history of ufos they should know at least where all of this comes from and again, so what you're saying here is the flying saucer term was already popular by 1947. It didn't become popular with the Kenneth Arnold sighting. It was already very, very popular for, for about 60 years. And it's actually fascinating because when you, when you look at, at, at the 1940s, when you look at the newspaper of the 1940s, you find that um, American soldiers were using it constantly. And in fact, in, in the Kansas City Star, this is something in the book, there's a, a little uh, news item that says at four o'clock, targets will dart out of the traps and on each flying saucer will be a picture of Hitler. 
And that was published on August the 31st, 1941. So you can imagine everybody painting uh, pictures of Hitler on their, on their clay targets and firing them off into the sky to be shot. And they were calling them flying saucers at the time. There was no air traffic control audio that was available, uh, at least that was on the Internet or accessible in those days, was there? Uh, no, there was not, no. <laughs> so when Kenneth Arnold is telling air traffic control, um, there's there's no record of that. Uh, we're basically going on whatever uh, someone can recall. That's right. Yeah. So um, he never he never took a photograph of what he was seeing. Uh, in later on, of course, he did buy a, a camera, um, a film camera, in fact, so he could he a movie camera, so he could actually record it if he ever saw it again. But uh, he was he was just going on his memory and his. I mean, everyone's recollection decays, you know, over over the years. So um, his his memory of what he saw just got fuzzier and fuzzier which is why you see from 1950s onwards that um yeah his his story changes slightly that's why it's so important to go back to the roots to 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 the first ever uh, statements that he gave to the press and to journalists and there we see he did not talk about um disc-shaped objects at all did he ever mention uh, before or after that he ever had an encounter again yeah, indeed he did. Um, I was speaking to uh, Kim Arnold, uh, his daughter, about this, and she had collected a, f a few of his encounters together. But I think this book that I've published now, Sources, um, contains the, the biggest catalogue of all of Kenneth Arnold's later sightings. So um, in Chapter 23, uh, What Arnold Saw Next, it's the name of the chapter, um, I've, I've noted down eight of his of his sighting so seven after the initial one so for example on on july the 30th uh, he saw uh, a cluster of 20 to 25 brass colored objects which uh, at one point he said they looked like ducks but he was sure that they that they were not ducks um but then um in 1949 uh he took uh, movies of, of two ufos flying under his plane a treetop level uh, near Mount Lassen, which is an active volcano in, in California. Then on July the 4th, 1950, a newspaper reported that that, that his wife, um, Doris, had also seen UFOs. So we're talking about a repeat witness here. And that's something that people are really not very aware of. Then... In August 1951, he talks about UFOs seen um, over the Santa Rosa Mountains near McDermott in, in Nevada. And um, these were very strange, very strange lights that he saw. I've documented all of this in the book quite carefully. In, in 1952, he talks about uh, something he saw near Susanville in, in California. Um, it was a, a craft which was, um, well, there, there were several crafts. Well, I want to hear more about this, and uh, we can't do it justice right now because we have to take a break, but we'll finish it next. Into the
I love uh, learning new stuff, and we do that nightly here on Into the Paranormal. I'm Jeremy Scott. For instance, I did not know that Kenneth Arnold had additional sightings. Uh, I threw that out there because I'm thinking as a pilot, and of course Kenneth Arnold in 1947 went in search of a missing aircraft. Uh, So he's got experience, uh, definitely you know, piloted uh, a lot of planes in his years, uh, many hours, I can imagine. And here is uh, Chris Abeck, uh, author of Saucers, Tracing the Origins of Disc-Shaped UFOs, telling us about uh, some of the encounters that Kenneth Arnold had. Please continue. Yeah, so in uh, 1952, near Susanville in, in California, he said that he came within half a mile or two of um, of these some craft, a couple of craft, one of which was completely transparent. And he concluded that these craft were alive. So um, this, he, he began to think that these craft were somehow communicating with him, that they were biological organisms of some kind. Then um, I've got other, other cases, like, for example, around 1965, he saw UFOs in, in, Idaho, in Idaho. Then he, he also, uh, in July 1966, he and other witnesses uh, saw some kind of object in the sky. It was triangular or pyramid-shaped. Uh, some, some people said that it was a, a weather balloon. So, yeah, he, he was definitely a repeat witness, and that's something that people um, aren't very aware of. Absolutely. So as far as the shapes and sizes of UFOs you were talking about earlier, uh, I mean, these do come in all shapes and sizes. So the question is, why did the flying saucer get a lot of the attention? Yeah, well, I think it's uh, partly because of this uh, deep connection with, I mean, between the expression flying saucer and this sport and the military use of of these play targets in the 1940s, people were just so used to this expression. It's a little bit like saying little green men these days uh, or at any time in history. Little green men is something that we all all remember. It's very funny to say that you've seen little green men is is, is extremely memorable. And so flying saucers uh, had the same fate in that sense. People remembered the expression flying saucer. I mean, even if you grew up in the 1910s, 1920s, you would have been familiar with it. So there was a point in which everybody said that they'd seen uh, flying saucers, discs in the sky. The the, the curious thing is, of course, that the word flying saucer later became uh, a catch-all expression to describe any kind of UFO of any shape. So we find newspapers in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s describing diamond-shaped, star-shaped, cigar-shaped objects in the sky, but the headline was always flying saucer seen near Idaho or whatever. So it was just um, a a kind of subliminal thing. It was a psychological thing. Um, People associated the name flying saucer with these objects. So, of course, they became the the disc. I mean, the disc became representative of the whole field, and and these days everybody associates these these objects with with alien spacecraft. Understand the terminology and why it was popular back then, but people had to have been seeing something. Uh, what do we believe they were seeing back then? 
That's a very good question because, um, of course, there's no reason to say that no UFOs have ever been disc-shaped. That would be ridiculous. It's just a, a much smaller percentage than what people um, uh, have um, given the, pre the impression that they've seen. Um, well... It's. I don't. I wouldn't know what it, what people were seeing exactly. But the fact is that if you look at many of these cases, a lot of these very famous cases from the 40s, 50s, 60s, um, the objects were not as disc shaped as we imagine that they were. Uh, so. Um, I mean, there are lots of psychological phenomena uh, like um, confirmation bias, false memory syndrome, and so on. So you've seen something in the sky, you want to report it, and when you report it in your memory, you've reconstructed it as a disc-shaped object. So that, that happened quite often. But, I mean, it, I'm not saying that disc-shaped UFOs have never existed at all. I'm just saying we should wake up to the fact that it's a very, very small percentage, you know, overall. I'm just wondering if uh, people are focused on one thing. What are they not focused on? What was really going on at this time? Makes me wonder. More with Chris Abek coming up in our second hour of Into the Paranormal. I'm Jeremy Scott. support of Into the Paranormal by buying from the Paranormal store at ParanormalRadio.com. say here, I want to thank every single one of you who uh, turns this program on. It is a choice and we know that you have uh, many other uh, places pulling at you uh, for your listening ears and uh, we appreciate you putting your listening ears here. And thank you for listening on the TalkStream Live Paranormal Radio app, the Paranormal 13 list for 2023. And we are so honored to be the number one podcast for the second straight year. It's thanks to you. So whatever you're doing, please continue to do it, whether you're listening on the radio, whether you're listening on podcast, whether you're listening on streaming. We literally have uh, this great country of ours uh, covered like a blanket. And uh, we appreciate everybody listening. Uh, it really means a lot to know that you're out there listening, even just 
uh, to hear from you from time to time, to know that you're listening to this program as we gain new listeners, uh, even those uh, who just want to say hello and you're new to the program, or maybe you want um, a suggestion of some uh, recent episodes that you should you should check out. I'll give you some recommendations, certainly if you drop me a line at parabnormalradio.com. And uh, for the new followers tonight, whether you're listening on the Internet or on the terrestrial radio side of things, uh, our website, parabnormalradio.com, and you can find our social media links there. We're on Facebook and Instagram, Threads and Twitter, or X, as it's now called. And uh, we've got our links up at the website. Chris Abeck, my guest tonight, you can find his book, Saucers, Tracing the Origins of Disc-Shaped UFOs on Amazon. And we, we spent a lot of time talking about the Kenneth Arnold sighting of 1947 in the first hour. I think it's important to point out that, at least from all accounts, Kenneth Arnold did not see a flying saucer. It also kind of proves the point. Why were people reporting these flying saucer uh Shapes, And, of course, we certainly have, I think, gotten to the bottom of that through our discussion so far. But as I mentioned at the end of the hour, and I'm wondering, Chris, if you have any thoughts about this, as all attention was fixated on the flying saucer, um, any idea what it was taking our attention off of? Well, that's a very good question. And um, I think that what we have to do really is to firstly acknowledge that uh, sources have been a distraction for us for a long time. I mean, I don't want to get into conspiracy theories. I don't want to speculate in that way. But the fact is that because we've been fixated on this source of shape, and then every study, every good study that there's ever been shows it's been such a tiny percentage. I mean, what shapes should we have been looking at? I, I, I myself saw a, a UFO. Um, on the 6th of April, 1996 in Spain. And uh, it was rectangle. And it's it's amazing because when I tell people, yeah, I saw a UFO, they immediately imagine I saw a, an inverted soup bowl with an with, with antenna or something like that. And then I say, yeah, it was sort of rectangle. It was orange. It was luminous. And they're like, oh, okay, that could be a UFO. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very strange reaction. Um, but, I mean, the fact is that uh, I'm sure that so many UFO reports have never, been, have never seen the light of day because people have said, well, I don't know if it was a UFO because it wasn't really a disc, you know, and maybe it was like any other shape under the sun. And, and these, these sightings have been totally ignored. I mean, if, if we look back at the, um, there's this Trinity, the, the Trinity case that uh, my friend uh, Jack Svelli was, uh, was researching, and he published a book on this recently um, with Paula Harris. The, the, the witnesses uh, of this crashed UFO from the 1940s uh, originally told researchers that they'd seen a disc, a saucer shape, and that they'd been inside and all this kind of thing. But they described it as a saucer. Nobody really paid any attention to them at that point. The, then a little bit later on, maybe a year later, they started saying, actually, it was shaped like an avocado. And that's when researchers started paying attention. I mean, the fact is, shape is important. Uh, but the disc has been way too dominant for a very long time. Is it possible that we were just chasing the wrong thing? 
I think that um, at least culturally speaking, yeah. I mean, I think ufologists have been chasing absolutely everything uh, for, for, for decades. Um, anything strange that moves in the sky. But the fact that uh, we've been so disc-obsessed uh, since the 1940s has meant that many sightings have, 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 have passed us by and have never reached uh, u ufologists or researchers people are, have actually been embarrassed to say the, the kind of strange shapes that they've that they've seen um when when they weren't discs can you uh, I, tell us about I'm, some of those well um i'm i have collected lots of them i mean there's there's one for example of a, a starfish shape uh people started saying that they saw an object that looked like a starfish this never reached the attention of, of ufologists because they immediately thought, oh, it must have been a weird balloon or something. It, I don't think it was. I think it, it, it moved in a very strange way. I mean, uh, a, lot of, a lot of quite controversial, I'm not saying if they were real or, or not. You've got the Kexpert object that was acorn-shaped, for example. Right. Um, there are, there are other, other objects which have been um, rectangle or cube-shaped and, and so on and so forth. But they're not. They, they just haven't. They just haven't been popular enough. Uh, simply because um, people have expected them to be discs. I'm sort of hoping that the new generations of, of researchers, the next generation of, of people in general, uh, uh, people of 20, 30 years old, who haven't been exposed to so much uh, disc-shaped imagery through science fiction and B movies and comics. I'm sort of hoping that um, they'll they'll see UFOs in a different way, and if they see an object that's uh, like a like a, a tennis racket, for example, and there have been uh, objects of that shape, they'll be happy to report it. They will, they're not going to say, I, "I think I saw a disc." I think that um, these days people are, are slightly more open-minded about what UFOs look like, and of course, practically all the videos that we see in on YouTube, except for the really fake ones. Um, they're of objects that are not disc-shaped. So I think we can look forward to a future in which people start reporting everything they see, whatever shape the objects had. But I think that a good starting point is this book because it really shows people where the disc shape originated, why we're so obsessed with with this this saucer-shaped thing. And I think that it should open up a whole new debate. Well, in the case of the Phoenix Lights, um, people were reporting uh, boomerang-type uh, mm. craft. I'm wondering then if all these shapes and sizes are the same thing and they have the ability to shapeshift. That's another idea. In fact, um, when one of the reasons that, that Kenneth Arnold uh, evaded this question so much was, was that he believed that they did um, shapeshift. He said that uh, a lot of these objects adopt different different forms so i wouldn't be surprised at all if there's something like that going on in the book i do mention uh how even the um, even the mesopotamians and we're talking about uh, five thousand years ago they they, they spoke of weird meteors that uh, supposedly change shape in midair and so on or they they said that when a meteor becomes a fly shape or a, a vegetable shape or whatever a flower shape whatever happened. They, they had uh, sort of astrological interpretations of these phenomena. So the idea of shape-shifting objects in the sky is not a new one. Um, I've got several cases like that in the book. 
as we talk about uh, more of the the origins of these craft, do you think that these are extraterrestrial craft? Do you think these are something that maybe we have got the plans from the extraterrestrials and have made ourselves, uh, that they may be in other countries, uh, that they may be like a, a shadow government or some like um, hidden uh, group with within our borders who's uh, launching these? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if people were at least, had at least been inspired by decades and decades of, of, of UFO reports to try to develop uh, objects um, with a propulsion system or with some kind of structure similar to, to, to what people have seen. Uh, because people have been influenced by, by the UFO phenomenon in the same way that they've been influenced by science fiction for decades and decades. But I think that um, really the, the key to the phenomenon possibly lies in the past in the sense that um, any UFOs reported from before Kenneth Arnold, and as I said, I've got two, two like four chapters in the book uh, dealing with, with these uh, sightings, could not have been developed um, by, by our engineers, by modern engineers, and sent back in time. It's very unlikely. Uh, so I think that if we start looking at the history, the prehistory of it, we're more likely to, to come to a solution, I'd say. Um, it's because, obviously, people these days are seeing very similar phenomena to what, to what our ancestors saw. Do you mind sharing with us a couple of these uh, reports of disc-shaped objects uh, from before 1947? Um, yeah, of course. So um, I'm just uh, turning to a, a page in my book, for example. So one one of them uh, is from 1665, and it says, After a while, out of the sky came a flat, round form like a plate, looking like the big hat of a man. Its color was like the dark, the darkening moon, and it hovered right over the church of St. Nikolai. There it remained stationary until the evening. The fisherman, worried to death, didn't want to look further at the spectacle and buried their faces in their hands. Um, so here we have, we, here we have uh, the story of uh, fishermen who, who saw this big, flat, round object in the sky. And um, the interesting thing is it says that on the following days, they fell sick with trembling all over and pain in head and limbs. And then no one knew exactly how to interpret that. But I've, I've put that in the book. Uh, are there more uh, current ones that you could share with us? Um, yeah, I've got I've got several pages like this uh, into the um, the eighteen nineties and and so on. Uh, for example, because of course these are chapters about uh, historical cases. Because my 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 whole idea here is to show what have what there existed before before um, Kenneth Arnold. I think that's so important. So, for example, um, in eighteen ninety five, we see a London writer describe something he saw in the sky that appeared to be flat, round shaped. And it was a massive fire, not the shape of a ball, but more the shape of a grindstone. And he watched it for 40 seconds, and it was flying through the sky. And that, that, was, in, that, that, that was in London. So people were seeing flat, round objects in the sky. Not too many of them, but uh, they, they certainly did exist. 
Then another case, of course, that I, I, I do note in the book is what was seen flying over San Diego in, in October 1946. That was a bullet-shaped object. It wasn't a disc. I would, yeah, I will, interested I've always... in that one because it happened right before uh, Kenneth Arnold and Roswell. And we'll uh, continue that thought with Chris Abeck, author of Saucers, Tracing the Origins of Disc-Shaped UFOs, when we continue. Into the Paranormal. Something, perhaps something that can uh, shapeshift in the sky that doesn't look ordinary. That is fascinating to me. And the fact that we haven't been able to identify these uh, throughout uh, history, even more fascinating. I mean, just look at the work that's being done. Uh, a lot of these are not identifiable. A lot of these, we need. they say that we need more information on. Interesting if the change-up at Arrow uh, leads to some changes. I've been quite critical of uh, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick throughout uh, his time there because I feel like he is um, not giving truthful responses and is uh, not treating this subject with the seriousness that it deserves. So we'll see if, if that changes Chris Abeck telling us uh, about a sighting in San Diego in 1946. This thing looked like a, a what? Yeah, they said it was uh, bullet-shaped, which is uh, fascinating, really, because, of course, uh, if, if flying saucers are related to trap shooting and skeet shooting, then the idea that they saw a bullet-shaped object is an interesting coincidence. So, um, yeah, this, this object was seen by a lot of people uh, walking along the street. They looked up in the sky, and they saw this, this winged bullet-shaped object. And, of course, um, they started saying, well, this must be uh, the Martians. This must be extraterrestrials visiting us. And this was months and months and months before before Kenneth Arnold. And then um, what happened was that uh, one of the witnesses, uh, Mark Probert, um, a medium, in fact, said that um, that it was a luminous craft at the size of a large plane with two reddish lights. And um, he said that he could see that the that the wings were flash uh, were flapping. Then, um, as he was a medium, he went into a trance um, and he tried to contact the, the 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 crew, the pilots of this object. And um, he said that uh, they they told him it was from a planet thousands of miles away, probably millions of miles away, rather, and um, that they would like to uh, meet with Earth scientists at some isolated spot in the future. Um, it's amazing to think that in October 1946, um, the newspapers uh, across the, uh, North America um, had headlines like um, aliens uh, visiting visiting North America in um, an extraterrestrial spaceship has been sighted. And of course, most of that had been totally forgotten by the time uh, Kenneth Arnold had his sighting on the 24th of June. Although it is true at the same time that in uh, Amazing Stories, uh, Ray, Ray Palmer's um, magazine, he was talking about uh, the possibility that aliens would visit us very, very soon. And he speculated um, in the mid-40s that by 1948, this would probably happen. And then, of course, in 1947, 
Kenneth Arnold had his sighting. So his his prediction so, seemingly came true. <laughs> do you think aliens are behind this? I have absolutely no idea, but um, I would I I'd love to think so. Wouldn't it be great? I mean, the idea that finally we'd have proof that we're not alone in the in the cosmos in the universe. I mean, the the first book I published uh, last year, Alien Artifacts, goes into our whole love affair with the idea that uh, aliens are visiting us. And in this book, I talk about how people have spoken about alien visits since way back in the, well, for the last 300 years. And I keep telling people, 1823 was the year that the ancient aliens theory was first invented. It was first developed in 1823. This year is is the 200th anniversary of the ancient aliens theory. 200 years ago, people were talking about the possibility that aliens had been our ancestors and that they'd, they'd helped build the pyramids and the Easter Island statues. All of this is 200 years old. And yet we're still trying to figure it all out all these decades later. I'm Jeremy Scott into the Parabnormal. Paranormal News. The torrid meteor shower will peak over the next week. With clear skies, as many as 10 multicolored fireballs per hour could be seen at night or morning through this coming Monday. Torrid meteors are debris from a comet that was first seen in 1786 by French astronomers and has the shortest known orbital period of any comet. They're rather weak, but long-lasting and are the slowest of any major meteor shower, moving at 17 miles per second. George Henry, Paranormal News. I had a conversation about flying saucers some years ago with Lehman. Because I'm scientific, I know all about flying saucers. So I said, I don't think there are flying saucers. So the other, my antagonist said, is it impossible that there are flying saucers? Can you prove that it's impossible? I said, no, I can't prove it's impossible. It's just very unlikely. That, they say, you are very unscientific. If you can't prove it impossible, then why, how can you say it's likely that it's unlikely? Well, that's the way that is scientific. It is scientific only to say what's more likely and less likely and not to be proving all the time possible and impossible. To define what I mean, I finally said to him, listen, I mean that from my knowledge of the world that I see around me, I think that it is much more likely that the reports of flying saucers are the result of the known irrational characteristics of terrestrial intelligence rather than the unknown rational efforts of extraterrestrial intelligence. Asking the hard questions as we ponder what could be. You're traveling into the paranormal. Richard Fenman, the likelihood of flying saucers. I think it's a rational opinion. We don't know if these are extraterrestrial. Maybe a combination of uh, all of the above. 
fascinated to talk about flying saucers as always. Well, any type of uh, unidentified flying object, in fact, and we're doing so with the Chris Abek, author of Saucers, Tracing the Origins of Disc-Shaped UFOs. Uh, you were talking about this ancient alien theory. Yeah, because um, I'm really interested in the fact that it's 200 years old and no one seems to, to realize it. I mean, it seems like something that we invented in the 1960s or 70s, but... If you go back to um, the, the 19th century, uh, people were already talking about the possibility that uh, our ancestors had come from another planet, um, from the 10th planet even. Sounds very much like the Zachariah Sitchin theory. And um, many religious books actually were published uh, that said, I mean, 150 years ago, that said that even Adam and Eve had come from uh, another planet. And... Um, it's a fascinating thing that I, I wrote about in, in Alien Artifacts, the, the book I published last November. So if anyone wants to check that out, I really would like them to, to give me their opinion afterwards about what this means to them. Because, um, you know, the, the, the whole theory of uh, the, that our ancestors have come from another part of the galaxy, I think is a fascinating one and very, very controversial. Uh, is it possible that the flying saucer is all but extinct or is extinct well it, it does look like like that i mean it looks that way um you know the interesting thing is that if you go on youtube and you look at uh the latest videos and you and you can see which ones have been faked and well it's becoming quite difficult um but the the fake ones are practically always shaped shaped and the the genuine ones uh, normally either spherical or tic-tac-shaped. I think that what we're going to see is a massive decline in, in saucer-shaped objects over the next few years. I, it's, it's a prediction I made a long time ago, and it's, it's coming true. Um, it makes a lot of sense if we think about where the idea of flying saucers came from. So, uh, yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm happy about that. Let's, let's bring on the, the weird and wonderful shaped uh, spaceships i'm sure there are lots of ufos that that we're missing simply because we've been fixated on the wrong wrong object all these years so what is the takeaway here uh when it comes to flying saucers well i would say that the we, we have to be very careful with uh, anyone reporting uh, flying saucers, the stereotypical one these days, because it might be an indicator that they're either either misremembering what they saw, they've been highly influenced by science fiction and and uh, memes and, and modern culture. I think we have to be very careful with any any sign any flying saucer reports that we see. We should we should pay more attention to to other shapes and i'd say that it's very important to to know where all of this came from because if you're in an argument with somebody you're debating the topic of ufos if if neither party knows really how all of this started if they don't know about kenneth arnold's other sightings it's just it's just a, a terrible shame to to missing so much important information. Uh, it would be like discussing uh, the religious version of, the, of, of creation without knowing anything about the book of Genesis. We really need to know um, the details of how all of this began. So 
If anyone wants to know that, I think that this is a very good starting point, and especially where the expression flying saucer came from. Because once you realize that, and in the book I have set it out in a, in a very um, amusing way, I, I, I think, was what people have told me anyway, because I've, I've, I've put so many images in the book, and I've even presented all of these um, quotes with the word flying saucer in it from before 1947 in a very interesting and fun way. I think that uh, you, people should really know this. And um, I'm just looking forward to the day that in Wikipedia they 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 pick up on this and and they realise that um, flying saucers uh, have a have a very strange history, something that no one was aware of before, and that we should look forward to a whole new generation of UFO designs. Speaking of where things uh, came from in your uh, previous book, uh, which we talked uh, with you actually earlier this year about uh, alien artifacts, the forgotten story of how we came to believe in visitors from the stars, you talk about some of these objects which don't appear to be, um, can we say, from this Earth? Um, that's right, yeah. I have a whole series of, of books which I'm calling Alien Artifacts. I, I'll be bringing out the next next volume very, very soon. And it's because since um, around 1847, people have been reporting very strange objects, often covered in hieroglyphics or containing something inside, uh, even Martian mummies, uh, other books, manuscripts, other small objects. People have been reporting this for, for about 200 years. And it's something which we should remember we should bear this in mind when we when we read about uh, UFO crashes these days. If you're a believer in UFO crashes, if you believe that objects can come to Earth from from other planets, you should know something about the history of this. I think it's extremely important. Um, if you if you disbelieve all of uh, you know UFO crashes and all, all of this matter, then you should also know what our ancestors talked about. It, it's it's incredible to think that in the times of, of Charles Dickens and Emily Bronte, uh, people were aware of stories of, of objects coming from other planets uh, covered in alien writing. So yeah, these the the three volumes I'm publishing on on this called Alien Artifacts um, will will give people a very complete uh, history of, of of that topic. And when we talk about artifacts, what types of things are we talking about? Well, um, I'm just I'm just about to to finish uh, the next volume in which I start with what looked like a sword. Oddly enough, in 1883, uh, a doctor called Dr. Keita in in Ulster County, New York, saw this ball of fire flying through the sky and land in a creek. When um, they dug it out. And they they hauled it to the to, to to the banks of the creek. They realized that it resembled a, a sword, a giant sword covered in in strange hieroglyphics. And in most of the newspapers at the time, um, they said this must be an alien artifact. This must be an extraterrestrial object. Uh, who can translate these hieroglyphics? And it was even on on exhibition. People were people were, were paying good money to go and visit this. And this is something that we've totally forgotten about. Oddly enough, Charles Fort. Uh, wrote about this um, in a letter to the New York Times um, in 1924, uh, asking for more information. And 
finally I've, I've been able to piece together the whole story. But there have been a lot of uh, other objects uh, like that, uh, cogwheels and machine parts and, and so on, which have been reported, uh, you know, from that period. Another story that I'm going to add to, to the current volume is from the 1920s. There was a, a farmer, again in North America, where many of these stories come from, uh, who said that he'd found an alien skull, the skull of, a, of an alien pilot whose spaceship must have crashed in the atmosphere, uh, scattering uh, debris and his uh, extraterrestrial remains across a wide area. And he presented this alien skull to, to newspapers and to a doctor. And um, he organized a, a search party to, to find the rest of this dead alien and whatever w remained of, of the spaceship. And that's another story that's been totally forgotten from the 1920s. There, there are so many interesting anecdotes like that. These are uh, things that are obviously aged and come from an era when uh, we didn't have the ability to make these things, right? Meaning humans. That's right. I mean, we, we, were, we were unable at that time to create um, exotic materials. And apart from that, nobody really spoke about UFOs in that period. Um, it, was, it was before all of the science fiction movies and the cinema. Uh, there weren't really many magazines. I mean, you go back to the 19th century, Pulp fiction hadn't really been invented yet, so there weren't so there weren't so many magazines like Amazing Stories dedicated to the subject. So anybody saying that they'd found an alien artifact um, was either totally inventing it, or they'd found something genuine and genuinely puzzling. And the fact that our ancestors uh, believed that these had come from other planets is fascinating. Because, as I say, uh, these days we, we just imagine that all of this is, is entirely new to the current generation or maybe to our parents. But no, this, this goes way back. And where have these uh, artifacts been found? Uh, on other planets like the moon? Um, well, I, the, my books talk about, uh, I, about artifacts that have been found on Earth. Um, over the last uh, 200 years or so, uh, certainly not the moon or, or other planets. But it's interesting, of course, there are many conspiracy theories that, that point to um, astronauts finding weird artifacts on the moon. But I don't get into that now. So these are objects that, that have uh, maybe fallen off of a spacecraft or something of that kind and landed on Earth. Yeah, that's the idea. And the the ancient alien theory that I that, that I've, I've mentioned before that comes from 1823, the the writer of the first ever book on this subject, uh, 200 years ago, said that a planet had probably exploded somewhere in our solar system, scattering debris and and pieces of technology and and uh, proof of some some advanced culture. Throughout the solar system, they, they would have landed on all the planets, and some of them would have landed on Earth. And he also said that um, survivors of that cataclysm uh, could have survived here too on, on, on planet Earth and become leaders or teachers to our ancestors. So, um, yeah, I mean, 200 years of people speaking about that long before Eric von Daniken. 
Fascinating conversation that we've had tonight with uh, Chris Abeck, author of Alien Artifacts, the forgotten story of how we came to believe in visitors from the stars and his newest, Saucers, tracing the origins of disc-shaped UFOs. Chris, uh, where's the best place for folks to go? Find out more. Um, okay, so um, obviously these two these two books are available on Amazon. I'll be bringing out some more very soon. Um, if people want to talk to me, they can they can send me an email. My email is at the back of the book, but in any case, it's uh, caubeck at gmail.com. I'm very happy to talk to people about this. And um, they can also find me on Facebook, of course. And I also have my research organization, Magonia Exchange. Um, if they put that into, into Google, Magonia Exchange, and then .io, that's the name of the of the server that, that um, helps us distribute our information. They'll find me very easily, and I'd love uh, anyone to 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 join us in in this organisation. We've been going strong for about twenty years. We've found over forty thousand items, which we've shared amongst all the members. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a, an exciting group to to belong to. It's it's a little bit slower these days than it was 16 years ago, but I mean we found tens of thousands of interesting items, and I'm I'm hoping to to build an archive and to start publishing everything that we found and and share it with everybody because um, there's some fascinating things out there. And I look forward to uh, checking that out myself. Uh, There's a lot of good information that's published there. Thanks, Chris, for coming on the program. We'll be right back. Into the Paranormal. Jeremy Scott into the paranormal, somewhere between paranormal and abnormal. And we talk about the flying saucer. What were these witnesses actually seeing? Uh, Much like what we discuss on this program occasionally, we may never know. We just know it's somewhere between paranormal and abnormal and has seemingly existed for hundreds of years. And uh, we're still... Uh, assembling committees and branches of government to investigate uh, what I think we know is going to be kept secret because there is some sort of um, element that they don't wish wish to disclose, whether that's the extraterrestrial element or whether it's the national security element. There are reasons why this information has been kept secret, whether we agree with those reasons or not. As far as uh, why the flying saucers, though, have gone away, it appears. I mean, Chris has looked at the data, and he's been able to, uh, you know, tell us that they really do make up a sh- a small percentage of the sightings that are seen all the, uh, too often these days. Although, I have a feeling that the flying saucer is going to bounce back. The reason I say that is a couple of reasons. China has taken flight with its first electric vehicle takeoff manned flying saucer. You can just uh, put into your favorite search engine, China flying saucer, and you uh, should find it. It uh, was in development for about three years. It's an electrical vertical takeoff flying saucer, and it has taken flight for the first time. Of course, it uh, it works with a uh, with propeller blades, 
which UFOs, for the most part, true UFOs don't have. When people report UFOs, well, it's, number one, something they can't identify. Usually doesn't make a sound, and I can tell you it doesn't have propellers. Riders can fly for up to 15 minutes and reach an altitude of over 650 feet with a maximum flight speed of 31 miles per hour, or you can use an autopilot to take you wherever you want to go. So again, this is not uh, going to uh, be anything like people actually report when they see unidentified flying objects. These objects don't go 31 miles per hour. They don't get just a few hundred feet off the ground. Many times these are tens of thousands of feet in the air, even above the flight line, uh, above aircraft, commercial and military and uh, they certainly go a lot faster than that. Perhaps you heard about the uh, story in New Jersey of a man who apparently is building a UFO, a flying saucer, in fact, at a lab in New Jersey and uh, has been raided. FBI agents showed up at this lab, said that they were there to investigate UFOs or perhaps investigate the lab would be a more accurate uh, statement. The feds were there, said they had received a tip about enriched uranium being used at the site. So the FBI agents showed up and interviewed the man who's uh, building this flying saucer, also used a Geiger counter. Apparently uh, there was no uranium on site there. Uh, Obviously, uh, it appears to be above the board. It's just another shakedown. Uh, I mean, were they really there because they believed he was uni- using the enriched uranium? Or were they there because they thought he was uh, a tinfoil hat person that they had to keep their eyes on? Somebody that we need to, to go try to intimidate, you know, like what's happened with witnesses time after time after time throughout history. It does uh, make you wonder what they are trying to hide. What are they trying to hide? Because if flying saucers do not actually exist, if there's no evidence of them and everybody who talks about it is a, is a cuckoo bird, seems like a uh, over-the-top response to me. It's definitely a shakedown, and we've seen it throughout time in UFO history, and this is uh, probably another example of exactly that. From the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon, somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest, I'm Jeremy Scott. Don't be surprised if flying saucers make a comeback, although I wouldn't put my money on it. Good night. We'll talk to you next time.